This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I'm going to start out with a brief tease for Media Buzz on Sunday morning, 11 Eastern, I will do something I've never done on television. Uh, You can speculate as to what that might be as you uh, spend your weekend. I'm sure you'll spend a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, Hey, I saw this article in the New York Times Magazine about tabs. You know, when you're on your computer and you have tabs open instead of just browser windows. Uh, The author writes, when my computer freezes and shuts down, I'm not surprised. I have a tab problem. As I'm writing this, I currently have 72 browser tabs open. My email, my calendar, the dinner menu of the restaurant where I'm meeting a friend tonight, directions for how to get there, and order confirmation for a refill of Sonicare toothbrush heads, my local yoga studio's weekly schedule, medical claim forms, uh, it goes on. My phone, meanwhile, has no fewer than 263 open tabs. They reflect what's on my mind. So apparently tabs, I hadn't realized this, have been around since the 90s. Whatever the inventors intended us to do with tabs, they probably couldn't have imagined how emotionally attached to our tabs we would become. And I routinely have 50 tabs open because I just have a million things, mostly work-related, but, you know, some personal and, of course, I'm always outsmarting myself because then I can't find it, you know, because you doesn't immediately come up on the little list of icons that is either on the bottom or the top of your computer screen. Um, but what drives me crazy, and I think this is true at many companies, is when the company decides to send an update, a software update, and it blows up all your tabs that you so spend so much time so that you could find something two days later. I know there's a way to restore it, at least in Chrome, but anyway, you get the point. Listen to this. Next time you order those burgers and fries from your couch, be forewarned. If you don't add a tip for your delivery person, you might have to wait longer for your food. So DoorDash is doing a test where, you know, you order it on your phone, and then it says either give a tip or there's a box that says continue without tip. And then it tells you, this is wild, orders with no tip might take longer to get delivered. Are you sure you want to continue? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If if you don't leave a tip, you know, maybe the stuff will show up in about three or four hours. I always tip drivers. Now, they work hard. But, you know, DoorDash ought to pay the drivers more if it's so concerned that they're undercompensated. Okay, um... Ron DeSantis, who spent months very reluctant to criticize Donald Trump, apparently has now finally completely shed that reluctance. You know, there's this rumor going around, which he denies, but the whole thing is stupid, about does he wear, I don't know, some kind of lift in his shoes to make himself appear taller. 
And the former president has been sort of having fun with that. So now the Florida governor says in an interview, this is no time for foot fetishes. Think about campaigns is you never know how wild they're going to get. I know Donald Trump and a lot of his people have been focusing on things like footwear. I'll tell you this. You know, if Donald Trump can summon the balls to show up to the debate, I'll wear a boot on my head. Um, interesting choice of language. Uh, also an interesting effort to bait Trump into debating, which clearly he's not going to do. He skipped the first two and it hasn't hurt him at all. Jeff Bezos, meanwhile... You know, he's a Seattle guy. He went to Seattle in 1994 and founded Amazon out of his garage. And now he's, you know, worth zillions of dollars. And he spent a lot of money um, on helping Seattle and, you know, helping also through Amazon to transform it into a more of a boom town. Well, he's moving to Miami. He's becoming a snowbird. Like a lot of people in more northern climates. So Bezos saying on Instagram that – so he's got his reasons. His parents recently moved back to Miami where he went to high school, so it's sort of like going home. He wanted to be closer to them and his partner, Lauren Sanchez. I assume they were living together. I didn't know. I don't know where she lives. I guess it's in, it's, uh, in Florida. Another factor is that his rock company, Blue Origin – is increasingly shifting to Cape Canaveral, also in Florida. Um, so it turns out, this was no accident, that Bezos bought a mansion in South Florida for $79 million. Who else do we know that hmm, has a mansion in South Florida that he says is valued at a huge amount of money? Um and that was just, oh, I, this, I, I stepped on the kicker. He buys this mansion for $79 million a few months after buying a neighboring mansion for $68 million. I guess the one for $68 million just wasn't luxurious enough. On the other hand, he's worth $161 billion, so okay. And he says, uh, Seattle, you will always have a piece of my heart. However, sayonara. All right, story number one. As expected, because the new speaker, Mike Johnson, was pushing for this, the Republican-controlled House yesterday, late yesterday, approving legislation to send about $14 billion in emergency aid to Israel and to cut the same amount from um, the IRS. Now, President Biden has threatened to veto this bill. Senate leaders say they won't even take it up so that Biden doesn't have to veto it. Because, you know, then you end up in a 30-second ad. Um, he claims to be a supporter of Israel, but he vetoed emergency aid for Israel's survival. Well, the reason is Biden wants a big package, as, as you probably know, and as I've talked about here on the podcast. Aid for Israel, aid for Ukraine, money for border security, Money to help Taiwan. But Mike Johnson, in his first battle as Speaker, had other ideas. Also, uh, as you may know, the CBO, highly respected nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, says um, cutting that money from the IRS 
would cost taxpayers $26 billion in lost revenue. $26 billion. Anyway, Johnson telling reporters we have obligations and we have commitments, and we want to protect and help and assist our friend Israel, but we have to keep our own house in order as well. And I think people at home, the American people understand that. At home, you have to balance your budget. At home, you have to make tough decisions, and Washington should run the same way. Now, Democrats, not happy about this. Jerry Nadler, one of the more prominent Jewish Democrats from New York, called the legislation an insult to Jewish Americans. So think about that. Mike Johnson's willing to give Israel $14 billion, but it's an insult to Jewish Americans because of the way it was chopped up. Chuck Schumer, it mystifies me that at a moment when the world is in crisis, a time when we need to help Israel respond to Hamas, the House GOP thought it was a good idea to tie Israel aid to a hard-right proposal that will raise the deficit and is totally, totally partisan, all the while helping wealthy tax cheats get away scot-free. Um, so, I don't, you know, Johnson says he's perfectly willing to support aid to Ukraine. How much is another question, and undoubtedly it would be far less than Joe Biden wants, because Biden doesn't want to have to ask for more Ukraine aid until after the election, for obvious reasons. So he's proposing, I don't have the figures in front of me, but it's about $60 billion for Ukraine. I, you know, even by Washington standards, it's a lot of money. But had Mike Johnson made his first act, you know, he could have negotiated for different dollar amounts or whatever. But if he had not done the IRS thing, well, then from his point of view, you know, Congress is spending money it doesn't have because we have a huge deficit and we have a huge, massive federal debt. But that debt is not going to go away because you yank $14 billion from IRS enforcement. I mean, by, for one thing, the president in that big legislation last year gave the Internal Revenue Service um, $80 billion. In any event... He could have had a big win. Aid to Israel, aid to Ukraine, money for the border, toughening up border security, so important to Republicans, helping Taiwan. And instead, he did go the partisan route. And, you know, the Republicans only have a small edge in the House, but Mike Johnson has the votes to do it. So one thing I can say for sure This will delay aid to Israel because now there's going to be an impasse or a fight. The Senate wants one thing. And by the way, it's not just the Senate Democrats. Uh, As I've mentioned, Mitch McConnell, who is, after all, the Republican leader in the Senate, wants aid to Ukraine as well. He understands the importance. You know, Ukraine is involved in kind of a slog right now, uh, battling the Russians town by town the big sort of fall offensive or summer offensive that led into the fall, um, not quite turning out to be an unalloyed success. So the Ukrainians are in trouble. And again, I'm sure in the end, 
the United States will send money to both countries. But if you get into the partisan wrangling, which Congress is so good at, all you're doing is delaying the much-needed military aid to these two countries that are both fighting for survival. I mean, Israel is fighting for survival in the sense that its adversaries, Hamas foremost among them, want to wipe it off the map. They say that. It's in the charter. It's like that is the reason Hamas exists. Which brings me into story number two. The situation in Gaza right now is that Israeli soldiers have encircled Gaza City, the most densely populated part of that strip. The Israeli military says uh, it is waging close quarters combat with Hamas, house by house, which means there's going to be, you know, serious casualties on both sides. Israel coming under increasing international pressure to at least temporarily pause the fighting with Hamas to allow more humanitarian aid into the enclave. That's the word that Joe Biden used, pause. Let's have a pause. Now, a lot of people didn't like that because they interpreted it as Biden calling for a ceasefire only by another name. Um, The White House insists that's not true. The White House says it just wants to be, well, the one thing it wants to do is um, make further efforts to get the hostages out, obviously, especially the American hostages. And also, I mean, you know, you see the pictures on television every day as a result of the bombings and the blockade. And some humanitarian aid obviously has gotten in, and that was the deal that the president brokered when he went and met with Netanyahu. But, you know, Israel was so brutally attacked, and I won't recite the atrocities, but you're all well familiar with them. Israel was so brutally attacked that now it is fighting back and it is trying to make sure that Hamas could never do this again by eliminating Hamas. When Biden is causing for a pause, is calling for a pause, I don't have any doubt that he's not in the ceasefire camp, but a lot of people read it that way. And I don't think Israel is going to do much. I think Israel is going to keep fighting. And sure, as is predictable, and I think the media coverage of Israel is getting more negative because as the initial atrocities fade into the background. Now it's the Israelis in an effort, you know, war is hell. Uh, But at the same time, I got to say, you know, as a human being, you see these innocent Palestinians being killed, including families with children. It breaks your heart as well. However, Hamas, in effect, is sacrificing its own people because... You look at these refugee camps, like the one that Israel bombed, which I think was certainly a a colossal PR mistake, and hospitals and other, you know, sort of civilian outposts. And there are Hamas officials there or military installations or tunnels where they keep some of the rockets and they're keeping the hostages. Knowing full well that that will attract Israeli firepower. 
So by using its own people, the Palestinians of Gaza, as human shields, it sort of creates a trap for Israel. Israel's view is we got to do what we got to do. Now, here's uh, a couple of weeks ago, I read an interesting piece, a column by Elizabeth uh, Spires, in which she said she was getting sort of kicked around for not posting her opinions on the Middle East war, even though that's not her area of specialty. She has six other jobs and she's doing other stuff. And, but, you know, uh, she would nevertheless was getting uh, taunted. Well, here's a similar piece in the New York times news story begins like this. Deb Perlman, best-selling cookbook author and creator of Smitten Kitchen, I confess I was not familiar with that, tends to focus her social media posts on her work, like pasta or chocolate chip cookie recipes. But days after Hamas attacked Israel, she called the violence repugnant on Instagram and expressed dread for death and destruction now ahead on both sides. And then after that, she posted about her newborn niece and apple picking with her children. And then she gets all these direct messages. How can you post a couple of paragraphs and go on about apple pies? You are Jewish. Another one question why she never once had a ping of conscience about 70 years of brutal occupation. Somebody on the other side, the pro-Palestinian side. Someone else demanded she say more saying that Deb Perlman looked exactly like one of the hostages in Gaza that are being tortured and raped. What? In an interview, Perlman said that fury in my DMs, direct messages, was unparalleled. And that she had received a torrent of messages criticizing her silence before she acknowledged the attacks. There was a feeling that I was either condoning genocide or I wasn't calling it genocide when it happened or I wasn't using enough incendiary language. The Times goes on to say, people who work across industries, from famous online influencers to those in far less prominent online profiles, including a yoga teacher, an interior designer, and tech and real estate workers, said in interviews that they faced an expectation to share their opinions about the war. The pressure is conveyed either explicitly or subtly from friends and followers. Silence is viewed by many as its own statement. Now, some people have responded to this, and some people have gotten their heads kicked in. The editor of Art Forum was fired after the magazine staff published an open letter supporting Palestinian liberation. The editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar, I've mentioned this, faced calls to resign after saying the cutoff of water and electricity to Gaza was the most inhuman thing I've seen in my life, and she quickly apologized. So here's Phoebe Lynn, 24 years old, works at an energy startup in Washington. You see so many posts and videos saying, your silence is deafening, which is a very challenging thing to respond to. She says she has not yet shared her opinions online, but she's still thinking about it. Maddie Coppola, an interior designer in New York, who uses Instagrams to learn about new restaurants and follow design trends. Over the past two weeks, her feeds have become bifurcated, she says, with some friends posting they stand with Israel and others posting about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. 
Uh, Coppola has avoided wading into these discussions. She says she struggles to find information that she trusts about the conflict, and she feels that her own views are evolving. She also worries about upsetting friends or colleagues with her posts. I don't want to bring this into my work life, she says. You have to tread very carefully. Look, everybody in the world doesn't have to share opinions online. There's a lot of us who are paid to do this or it's in our professional interest to do it. But, you know, if you're baking apple pies or you're an interior designer, you may have opinions, but you don't want to alienate your friends and followers. You may not be sure what you think. You may just not want to get caught in the digital crossfire, so to speak. Uh, And I find that very interesting, which is why I spent some time sharing it with you. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Number three, let's go to Trump world. The uh, civil fraud trial in Manhattan has now heard testimony from both the president's son, Don Jr., and another son, Eric Trump. Don Jr. was calm but defensive, seeking to blame accountants for errors on financial statements that a judge has already found were fraudulent. His younger brother, Eric, was more combative, says the New York Times. He acknowledged his place at the center of the business but denied involvement in the financial statements. Eric Trump, who's going to continue to testify today, lost his temper after lengthy questioning about his knowledge of the company's annual financial statements. We're a major organization, a major real estate organization, he said, raising his voice. So lawyers for the New York Attorney General were able to expose, at least the Times believes, able to expose seeming contradictions and inconsistencies in the testimony of both brothers. The lawyer showed that Don Jr. had signed a letter to an accounting firm in which he said there were no misstatements on the financial documents. Even after being alerted to errors by Forbes magazine, he dismissed the correspondence as a cover-your-butt letter. Okay. Now, meanwhile, the judge in the case, Arthur Angoran, He is unhappy with one of Trump's lawyers, Christopher Kyes, for disparaging his law clerk, whose name is Allison Greenfield. The judge says he thinks it may be a problem of misogyny and asks Kyes not to mention his court staff again. I am not a misogynist, Kyes says, noting that he's happily married and has a daughter. Ingeron says he has an absolute unfettered right to get advice from his law clerk. He expressed concerns about the safety of his staff. Remember, Donald Trump Sr. Um, was fined, I forget if it was the $5,000 fine or the $10,000 fine, for seeming to refer to the judge's law clerk, although I think he was actually referring to Michael Cohen, which is what the former president says. Okay, Alina Haba, another of Trump's lawyers, complaining about Allison Greenfield having improper influence on the judge talking to him during proceedings. 
Uh, Haba says her conduct, Greenfield's conduct, is part of the record and the case. I'm not going to stand by and allow it to happen, she says. And because she is a woman, she is not a misogynist. All right, number four, and this is a huge story. A jury yesterday convicted the guy who used to be known as the crypto king, but now Drudge is calling him the crypto creep, Sam Bankman-Fried, co-founder of FTX, convicted of fraud, conspiracy, and money laundering. After a month-long trial, that says the Washington Post, um, prompted him to take the stand in his own defense after his inner, inner circle of friends turned deputies provided damning testimony against him. So you have a complicated financial month-long trial. The jury came back with a guilty verdict less than five hours. That's all it took. There's wire fraud, conspiracy to commit frauds, a lot of uh, counts here. SBF could get decades in prison. Now, his lawyer said that they will, or at least suggested they'll appeal. We respect the jury's decision. We are very disappointed in the result. We will continue to fight, and so on. Um, Bankman Freed accused of being one of the largest financial fraudsters in history, whose victims suffered nearly $10 billion in losses after FTX misappropriated customer funds to spend lavishly on luxury real estate, investments, dark money political donations, all at Sam's direction. U.S. attorneys saying cryptocurrency industry might be new, players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new, but this kind of fraud, this kind of corruption is as old as time, and we have no patience for it. So the consensus here, reflected in this Washington Post story and elsewhere, is that the worst, most damaging testimony came from Bankman Freed himself. You know, you're not required to take the stand in a criminal trial, and but many defendants who think they're not guilty feel like if they could just get up there and answer the questions, they could persuade a jury of that. But then comes cross-examination. And his is described here as a gutting cross-examination, Uh, from a prosecutor who used his own words, including from a whirlwind set of interviews he gave in the wake of his empire's collapse to expose what the prosecution described as a steady stream of lies. Bankman-Fried claimed more than 140 times not to remember key details of his own statement, prosecution calling this a pyramid of deceit. And let me just pause there and say, this was also a absolute... Um, far-reaching, far-ranging, and embarrassing failure by the media who lionized Sam Bankman-Fried at the time that the collapse happened, uh, but some months before that, but I I talked about it, obviously, when the collapse happened, um, you had publications ranging from the New York Times to Politico going to the Bahamas, which is where they had set up shop, Um, on the top floor of some nice building with all his pals, including his girlfriend, who pleaded guilty, who was in charge of this other fund. Um, And the puff pieces that came out of that, oh, you know, he's just an ordinary kid. Uh, He wears uh, hoodies 
and tousled hair, and he, you know, and he talked to everybody. You wanted an interview with him, you got it. But lawyers always tell clients who are under indictment, don't give interviews, don't go on TV, don't talk to the press. Now, some of them, a former president comes to mind, don't follow that advice. But here, the prosecution was able to take words, things he had said in interviews, and said, but isn't it true that? And how can you say that? And it dug him into an even deeper hole. So the prosecutors say that when he ordered his girlfriend, Carolyn Ellison, who ran this other firm, Alameda Research, to spend $2 billion to buy back uh, the FTX state owned by another crypto exchange. It gets a little complicated. But she responded that we only have half of that money on hand. We'd have to borrow the rest from FTX customers. Bankman Free told her to go away. That, my friends, is called theft. It's stealing. It's highway robbery, even though it's in a more sophisticated form. You're not allowed under the law to use your own customers' money, either to spend on yourself or to buy another company or whatever the hell it is. You're holding that in trust for people who trust you. And that turned out to be a huge mistake for anybody who uh, suffered these losses that, as I said, uh, went as high as $10 billion. It's clear as day, said one of the prosecutors, the defendant knows they're stealing and committing fraud, and that's exactly what they do. Now, here's just a little excerpt from a New York Times piece uh, to put this in context. Bankman Free once partied with stars and big shots, doled out fortunes and looted funds to politicians and himself, was acclaimed as the next Warren Buffett, employed his friends and made them rich for a while, was courted by the news media that printed his most banal comments. For a time, everyone loved Sam Bankman-Fried, with the apparent exception of Sam Bankman-Fried. I am, and for most of my adult life, have been sad. This came uh, toward the end of his testimony. Um, He always looked awkward, embarrassed in photos, as if he'd rather be playing a video game, even when Giselle Bunchen had an arm around him. How can you look awkward, embarrassed, and sad if you've got a supermodel with an arm around you? Everyone kept insisting he was off the charts brilliant. Maybe he knew better. As journalists and now prosecutors have made clear, FTX and Alameda were run by a group of hapless young people who did not have the required skills, maturity, or patience. Those who actually had a moral compass and sensed something was wrong soon peeled off, leaving a core crew who drifted or perhaps dived into trouble. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. And that brings us to story number five. And this is a scoop by Rolling Stone, and it's solid, unlike certain other Rolling Stone uh, infamous piece about a gang rape at the University of Virginia. It's solid because it's based on court documents. So, I mean, on the one hand, it's hugely humiliating, not for Rolling Stone, but for HBO. On the other hand, you might say BFD. So there was a wrongful termination lawsuit against HBO filed by a, a, filed by a former staffer uh, by the name of Sully Tamori. And what this involved essentially is, is Twitter wars, is trolling. 
So there are texts, as part of the court record, from the CEO of HBO, Casey Bloys, basically telling lower-level staffers to create fake accounts on Twitter, fake accounts on Twitter, to respond to critics talking about their shows and on websites discussing HBO. This is a write-up from Vulture. We at Vulture believe this to be very funny. Uh, And here are some of the examples. Uh, Some of the tweets include a response to Rolling Stone TV critic Alan Sepinwall following his negative review of The Nevers, which came out in 2021. Quote, Alan is always predictably safe and scared in his opinions, said the tweet, supposedly from a made-up name, Kelly Shepard, Texas mom and herbalist, but actually sent by Tamori, this woman who filed, ended up filing the suit. Sully Tamori. Um, the same account later tweeted at New York Times, chief TV critic James Panawazic, following his tweet that the Nevers feels like watching a show that somehow someone has mysteriously deleted 25% of the scenes from. And the tweet was about him and another male critic at the New York Times. How shocking that two middle-aged white men are essing on a show about women. And it didn't use essing. Uh, The trolling also included commenting on Deadline articles, Deadline website, about HBO following a comment on one article claiming HBO had gone downhill since the former head of programming left the company. Bloys, the CEO, instructed a staffer to comment, Hi, David Levine. HBO seems just fine. Thanks. (laughs) And Rolling Stone also wasn't happy with Vulture's TV critic, Catherine Van Arendonk, who ticked off the chief executive by subtweeting Perry Mason back in 2020 with the criticism, Dear Prestige TV, Please find some way to communicate male trauma besides showing me a flashback to the hero's memories of trench warfare. In response, Bloys uh, is sent text reportedly to, uh, I guess, one of his employees saying, maybe a Twitter user should tweet that that's a pretty blithe response to what soldiers legitimately go through on the battlefield. We just need a random to make the point and make her feel bad. Now, if you're wondering what are highly paid executives at a major media corporation doing, worrying about, you know, what critics say about their work to the point that they're spending all this time texting each other, creating fake accounts just to make the critics feel bad, if indeed the critics, you know, who get criticized themselves, probably brushed it off or thought it was funny. Are they that thin-skinned? Are they that sensitive? I mean, look, if you're in the business of putting out movies and television shows online, some people are going to love them, some people are going to hate them. It's HBO, for crying out loud. I'm with Vulture. I love this story because it's very funny. All right, folks. Hope you have a good weekend coming up. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, Media Buzz, 11 a.m. Sunday. Little tease I gave you earlier. 
Um, it's something, just something I have some fun with. And we'll be back here on Monday. Hope to see you then with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.